This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and I promise to have a haircut by the next time that you see me, unless I do a live stream or something like that. But you don't need to worry about that right now. What's on your plate at this point in time, is another discussion between myself and James Lindsay. I had him on to talk about the possible positives of adopting certain aspects of postmodernism, and that is the bulk of our conversation. However, uh, James wanted to talk about politics, and we spent about an hour doing that, and I cut that down, so you just kind of zip on in to us discussing uh, what it is like or what the problem is of a woke government under Biden. I tried to get him to specify his issues with wokeness within positions of power in the federal level. So we begin with that. And then about 15 minutes in, we move on to postmodernism. Postmodernism absolutely does have to do with our political environment, but it's more about the tools and the aspects and the theories about how our society in general is operating right now. So that's the basic two gists of this conversation. You don't need anything else from me. Here is James Lindsay. You only need a significant fraction, not a minuscule fraction, but a significant fraction of people who are radicals placed within positions of power to be able to do some major administrative changes. And to, to summarize your issue with the woke, it's because they are intolerant, because it is a largely intolerant ideology that, that I guess is ultimately counter to liberal democracy or liberal attitudes. I'm not quite sure what you're like. If you're asking my big picture problem with well, the woke, I mean, I'm, just, I'm trying to summarize for the listener. Like, why do why do you particularly care if 15 percent of Biden's 4,000 appointments are quote unquote woke? We just we always have to be defining our terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because what? I mean, so that's a that's a good question because they are actually not only intolerant. In fact, they are positively um, totalitarian. They are people who are interested in how you think, how you communicate, what is going to be taught, how people are trained. You have to look at what they're interested in, right? So they want to make sure that everybody that comes through, you know, the thing that, that, that just to take the example of the executive order that Trump issued that, about critical race theory, so to speak, if Biden overturns that, why? What is the purpose of being able to have critical race theory-based diversity trainings throughout the federal government and its contractors? Well, the purpose is to make sure as many people as possible are exposed to be either the mere exposure effect or via, you know, the tyranny of knowing that they can't go against their employer or via actually having been taken by these ideas and thinking that they are correct. As many people as possible are exposed to the ideas in critical race theory and begin to think either in line with critical race theory or realize that they're not allowed to think outside of line with critical race theory. And when critical race theory says a thing, then that's just what you have to do. Um, 
And the the ideology itself, whether it's critical race theory, whether it's from queer theory, any of these other woke theories, the ideology itself, it's not just that it's intolerant. It's not just that it's totalitarian. It's that it's positively dysfunctional. It creates positively dysfunctional circumstances. It is, to my, in my opinion, a national security threat to have our national security apparatus overly concerned with its internal strife with racism or devoting lots of resources to, to figuring out if there's racism. It is a national security threat to take, as I've heard from inside, our military apparatuses that are normally devoted to examining what's coming in from, say, foreign enemies and parsing out their communications or whatever it happens to be in intelligence and being redirected to having to deal with HR complaints internally to whether or not somebody was sexually harassed or sexually discriminated against under these kind of very expansive new community policies that everybody has to follow. And I've heard that this is actually a genuine problem that's occurring within our military right now. Hmm. is that a large number of the resources that used to go to things that when you find out we don't have those things operating very much anymore, you get scared, has been shifted over to parsing out whether or not there's sexual harassment going on in, in you know, military circumstances like uh, training or basic training or in, in military uh, bases and things like this. And the nature of the intolerance of the woke ideology is such that it is geared to make everybody around it devote resources to it. You have to talk about racism more. You have to devote resources to fighting racism. You have to talk about sexism more. You have to devote resources to fighting misogyny. Every minute you're not talking about it is a minute that you're that you're supporting the status quo. There is no neutral. These kinds of messages are beyond intolerance. They're beyond totalitarian. They are narcissistic and self interested and that becomes a threat to the stability of these these entities whether it's you know i don't know cia uh that going woke could you imagine the cia being significantly woke in its operations um we already have police knocking on the door in england for you know inappropriate tweets about trans people uh, so you got like a FBI or a CIA file on you now because, you know, you made some videos talking about how Washington state's out of control. Um, mm-hmm. It's not the kind of thing we really want happening. And again, every ounce of resources not dedicated to it is a problem. If you want to like, if I can send it later, if you end up wanting to splice it in here, we can even show it. But you have that famous North Korean uh, refugee. And I forgot what her name is. Very wonderful young woman. If you watch her videos, she's got a channel. There's not very many of them, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, and so she videos got bombarded. Or channels of North Korean females. What's that? V- not very many videos of hers, or not very many not videos very many, of North Korean. Not very females. many refugees from North Korea in the West who have made it out. Um, basically, got smuggled out. So she had this video she put out a month or so ago. I put it on Twitter. Um, where she's very upset, but she's actually talking about how um, there's this massive like sex slave trade going on North Korean girls in China. And, you know, North Korean girls basically get grabbed by the Chinese and dragged into China and they're sold for something that works out to like, I think she was like, if I'm not mistaken, like five yuan a day. So we're talking like 75 cents. Like, it's bad. And she's really upset about this. And she had done some videos talking about it. 
she started like getting all tearful and then she started getting the responses and the responses were like, we, you know, that's awful. We care, blah, blah, blah. And of course, a huge piece of North Korean propaganda is that nobody in the rest of the world cares about you. Only, you know, the, the, the Kim family, cares. you know, yeah. nobody cares about you. The rest of the world hates you. Everybody hates you. So she's just broken down with gratitude about how, and what she said is, you think North Korean lives matter. And Black Lives Matter lost their shit on her over this because she said some kind of life matters without giving the nod to Black Lives Matter. And this is what I'm talking about when I say it directs, wokeness directs all the resources it can. Anything it can leverage to becoming about it and its agenda it twists to that. I don't want that as a major. I'm not even worried or worrying necessarily about the impositions of freedom that it might put on American citizens. The fact that you're going to have compelled speech or silencing at your job, that you're going to have you know, all these things. This is already bad enough. But then just the fact of the drain of resources, because it's so narcissistic in its approach, that anything that's not about it is somehow evil or problematic and has to be corrected that is on its own a major threat to frankly the operation of the united states and its national security if we're wasting resources on this constantly at our federal level then we have a problem i've even heard from people who specifically worked within the obama white house who said that there's just a handful of these woke people you know like three in a department of many and that those people would just kind of run the show and it's just like you couldn't get any real work done around them because they'd start flipping out and bossing you around and hmm. even taking professionals and make them get your coffee for you and stuff like that doesn't just uh, just a drain unnecessary drain of resources and to twist things into, no, we need to make this more about diversity. We need to make this more about inclusion. We need to make diversity central to this. This is a, even without the other damages, this is a dramatic waste of resources because the ideology is so intolerant that it's intolerant of anything that's not about it. And that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Do you perceive, um, or how do you perceive new coalitions building? Uh, in the absence of Trump, it seems that the uh, Bernie uh, people will not have their blind hatred of that figure and the moderate leftists. Without Trump there to blind people with rage, do you see or perceive a path forward for different coalitions building that can form around booting this out or calling this stuff out without being automatically called a racist? I've been watching. It's hard to guess. It's really hard to guess. I've been watching. In fact, I'm a little bit down in my output lately because contrary to what Twitter believes about me, I don't like to speak into vacuums where I don't know what I'm talking about. And I like to try to have my feet and a little bit of clear vision before I say things. And so right now I perceive that there are shifts happening in our kind of sociopolitical environment that I can't read yet. So I'm being a bit hesitant to try to make these kinds of guesses because I can't articulate them for myself. So I can't articulate them for other people if I can't even kind of like see them for myself. Certainly, though, I see – I don't want to call it a realignment. Certainly, when you take the orange man bad 
but Trump, but Trump, but Trump out of the equation. I think that there's going to be a massive shift. And I don't know that populism is the right word for it, but I'm going to use that word as a stand in for the moment. Um, as anti-establishmentism, but populism works for the moment. I don't think that's quite right. But there is certainly going to be a lot more people who identify left, right, and center who realize that they have common cause and that the four-year pause that we've had from the normal operation of the establishment while Trump, whether liking him or hating him, was a very anti-establishment figure and did not go along with the typical establishment program, you're not going to hear Trump say build back better. Uh, For sure. He's going to say it's a bad deal for America, which it is. So um, Hmm. that is going to create a situation where people left, right, and center see that they have common cause, that whatever normal used to be, everybody's like back to normal. Whatever normal used to be wasn't good, and we don't want to go back to normal. That's actually, for me, the overwhelming feeling when people are like, you know, yo, you took your red pill. You know, I even put it on Twitter a while back. I said something along the lines of that, you know, being kind of behind Trump is like an understanding that you don't want to go back to normal because normal was screwed up. It's not necessarily burn it all down, but it's whatever we called normal up until 2016 was not okay. And I think we're going to see a lot of people now that Trump is ostensibly out of the picture or out of the power. Um, we're going to see a lot of people left, right, and center who have common cause around that set of beliefs that whether we call it neoliberalism, whether we call it the establishment, whether we call it the deep state, whatever the hell it is that something there is not good and we don't want we don't want to go back to that normal but at the same time the question is going to be how much does it fragment around what is the new normal look like because you know all we've heard for 4 years is we can't normalize trump and then covid comes along and it's oh this is our new normal which is yeah. inhuman so it can't possibly be right it can be forced upon us till it breaks but it can't possibly be right I mean, I like talking to you by Skype, but I guarantee you I would like talking to you in person infinitely more. And there's something much more human about it. And when I've had these these trips, I've taken, you know, conference type trips a few times this year, which is weird because COVID, this the stark contrast between what happens between people who meet in person for business versus people who meet over Skype for business, they're night and day different experiences in terms of bonding, caring about each other, learning about each other, mm-hmm. wanting to work together further in the future. Um, this this isn't a new normal. This is an unsustainable thing that there will pieces of it will stick around that will streamline business. But this is not normal. In fact, it's not even, I don't think, psychologically sustainable for people. So mm-hmm. will we fragment around what the shape of the new normal that's not the pre 2015, 16, you know, everything is fine kind of normal. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Cause I don't know that the left and right are going to be eager to agree on that, but I do think there's going to be a new level of seeing behind the curtain and not loving the establishment normal. 
the as I think Eric Weinstein would refer to it as like the gated institutional narrative. I think a lot of people see through that now that didn't before, and they're not just people on the right. They're not just Trumpers. They're not Q, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, there are a lot of people all over the map that are like, wait a minute, something mm-hmm. screwed up. And this is where I'm hearing these people say, I'm a Bernie guy, and I think I'm a conservative. What do I do, James? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> like take the red pill, let it wash over you, baby. Huh. Uh, do you see... Um well, we were going to talk about postmodernism, and I was hoping that you could save me from some of my critics. Not that that's your job at all, because I, I advanced. I, I know I, I don't want you to. You're not. You're not my swordsman, uh, my bannerman. Uh, but it, it seemed we had a short conversation about the possibility of certain aspects of postmodernism being employed toward good ends, being employed mm-hmm. towards. Uh, dismantling uh, the nihilistic uh, aspects of postmodernism, perhaps even uh, dismantling wokeness. Uh, This is a completely different conversation than what we were just talking about, but (laughs) it might be relevant through the cultural lens of figuring out how to unify with each other, how to reformulate uh, coalitions uh, through this onslaught of uh, tribalism and uh, this mainstream media that's absolutely off the charts manipulative, just clearly manipulative. Uh, are there certain techniques that we could be using or adopting to find reality, to find actual authenticity, and to build connections with each other uh, through all these different clash of narratives, these infinite warring narratives? I don't Yes, but I think that it's more useful to characterize this in a slightly different way. And that way is that we live in post-modernity, whether you like it or not. And so these tools are relevant, whether you like it or not. And I want to, I don't want to rescue the postmodernists because I don't love them. I know I have my friends who are actually kind of postmodern libertarian types and they, you know, we don't we don't agree on this, but we have wonderful conversations. So, uh, you know, no no disrespect to their opinion on this, these matters. But I don't really want to rescue the postmodernists. But I do think they were wonderful descriptivists. I think that they told. Hmm. I think that in fact they were shockingly foresighted. Um, it's almost like they saw the world that the internet and social media were going to make before it existed, like before it could even really be imagined to exist. Could you illustrate uh, uh, one one thing that one of them said that that was striking? I mean, so just so I can give you a couple. Um, So let's we'll we'll do Foucault first. Michel Foucault, Mister Postmodern or Doctor Postmodern, I guess. Uh, His idea of regimes of truth, where people create a regime of truth or or an episteme. You know, you could think of it like he did in terms of kind of contingent upon location in, in both time and space. But it's it's kind of like what we call an echo chamber now. It's like an ideological bubble. And the Internet has created the situation in which we are able to form kind of like the equivalent of nations without geographic border meaning too much except because of time zones. And so it's hard to have conversations in real time in Australia, as you and I have both experienced. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Mike. Um, far right, Mike. Far right. You're far right, too. You're on the far right list. I've been there for a while. I found, I found I think it was, it was new information for him, though. 
Yeah, well, we all knew that you were um, <laughs> too far to the right of Project Veritas. <laughs> that's that's real. You and Bill Crystal, who like I'm sure you and Bill Crystal are just have so much in common <laughs> in your far right natures, uh, Mister Neocon, and then Benjamin Boyce. And I'm a threat, man. You I'm are. You're just you're a threat. What the hell was I saying before? Um, we we're talking out? about right. Australia. Um, no, so yeah. we can create nations out of ideologies now online, right? Yeah. And so when Foucault starts talking about truth being a thing that's local to kind of a culture, we have these online echo chambers that have basically made subcultures that are in some sense mostly global um, collections of people with similar views about the world. And they have their own interpretive lenses, if you will, if you want to kind mm -hmm. of speak about it in postmodern terms or a term that other people have used for that as reality tunnels. Mm -hmm. And they see the world in a very particular way. And they don't really communicate really well across the line. So and what each one believes is a set of truths doesn't necessarily match. And so these are like kind of the, the idea that, that social groups can form and the self-reinforcing nature of how those people believe and interact and what information they accept and reject, what they consider to be true, what they consider to be false, what they consider to be crazy. That's the kind of stuff Foucault was actually describing. But in the internet, you can actually, you know, you right now in the next 10 minutes could bounce intentionally. You could go on Reddit or whatever, or Twitter, and you could use hashtags or whatever it is. And you could go from one group to another, to another, to another. These are literally networks of people who have very different ways of conceiving of the world. So you look at the election results camps right now, you have a huge swath of people who are 100% convinced the election was stolen for Biden. You have large swaths of people who are 100% convinced that the election could not possibly have been stolen and that this is a ridiculous conspiracy theory. And then you have people, a much smaller group of people who are like, uh, we don't know, hold on. And these actually are three sets of people for whom what is true and what is not true, what is thinkable and what is not thinkable, is completely separate. So Foucault was way ahead of the mark on identifying that human beings will interact with one another to create things that they believe are true and will treat as truth, and will carry the social and political power of truth regardless of whether or not they are actually true. And as Foucault would have said, it's not that everything is bad, it's that everything is dangerous and that this is dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, everybody's afraid that Joe Biden's going to get in. He's like, what does he say? This is so, this is so postmodern. He's like, listen to the science. And then what's the reply from the other side? Whose science? Well, there's postmodernism right there. That's what Foucault's whole argument could, you could summarize Foucault's whole argument almost down to that one interchange. Well, listen to the science. Whose science? That argument. And then you have, you have the other side. No, we listen to facts. And then the other, the, the left is coming back with, those aren't facts, those are conspiracy theories. Whose facts? Which facts? Alternative facts? We don't use alternative facts. We use real facts. Yeah. And we now live in a situation where, as I, I tried to point out to somebody rather meanly last night on Twitter, you don't have the apparatus necessary for anything that's happening on the big public stage to tell what's true. You can tell what's true in your kitchen, <laughs> but you can't tell what's true in the world.
because our media apparatus is so fragmented. The people that we communicate with to gain bearing is so fragmented. So Foucault was very perceptive with this. And then you know, that's Foucault. So we're living in postmodernity, very descriptive of something 50 years, 40 years in advance of when it was like the thing. But let's turn to Derrida. We don't. We could get into Baudrillard, of course, too. Baudrillard is basically the Matrix guy, um, and we talk about blue pills and red pills, and Baudrillard's obviously relevant. Simulacra and simulations. Everything's a simulation now, right? Um, but we'll skip Baudrillard and we'll go to Derrida because that one's harder. How is Derrida relevant? Well, what do you think Twitter is? Like Derrida's kind of whole point was if you want to be really kind of generous was that when we take, when we engage with a text, we don't actually understand the text necessarily the way that the author intended it. In fact, following Roland Barthes, he had, he believed, you know, in the death of the author. In fact, he said that we're in some sense, because your context and my context are ultimately subjective and I can't be in your head without maybe whatever Neuralink and you can't be in mine properly. He believed that there's this kind of infinite, infinitely deep um, abyss between subjective uh, minds and interpretations. So in some sense for him, everything's out of context. Twitter is like the epitome of engaging information out of context. Here's this quote, you know, yeah. Joe, who was it? I saw it last night. Somebody puts a quote. I don't know who said it. It was just, quote, um, I know who tweeted it. It was like Mike Jolette or whatever that guy's name is or something like this. Uh, blue check, some blue check, of course. So, but it's like Trump, quote, Trump intends to pardon all of his children, end quote, is not the kind of statement that happens in a functioning democracy. So the quote that we're dealing with is out of context. We, we don't know who even said it. We don't know what Trump actually said. But people, thousands of people are interacting with and reacting to this in some very significant way. They've decided some very significant part about something about reality, yeah, about okay. the nature of our democracy in a very profound way. And so I, I did a short thread that said it's really funny because if we just take this for granted, both will just to simplify left and right. Both sides think this is true, but for opposite reasons, because the context is provided by the person reading it. Mm -hmm. So a person on the left would say, oh, it's because Trump's kids are all criminals and he knows it. But a person on the right would say it's because the deep state is going to prosecute and humiliate Trump and his whole family and everybody associated with him in a significant way in an illegal way. Yeah. And that context changes everything. So, you know, Derrida's kind of most famous statement was um, there's nothing outside the text. Well, one way to understand that, and I've heard that this is accurate, and I've heard that it's inaccurate, and nobody understands Derrida, so I don't know. <laughs> like, Derrida complained to the day he died. I don't think anybody even ever understood me. And it's like, well, maybe you should have wrote something people can read, Jock. Um, you know, it's impossible to read your stuff even in French, and your translations are terrible. But no, his thing was, you know, there's nothing outside the text. And... It's written in a way in French where it's somewhat mysterious what he actually means. That's the literal translation. There's nothing outside of text. So there is no outside text. And one of the interpretations I've heard of that is that what he was saying is that there is nothing that has a universal context in which it can be understood. And so everything in the text gets interpreted through the context 
that the person brings to the text. Yeah. And Twitter, I mean, I think that the, how does social media create dysfunction is that I think that it, there is no medium that human beings have ever produced for communicating that's more likely to produce the result that everybody reacts to something that they're seeing out of context. Mm-hmm. If I do a tweet thread and you react to, angrily to something I said in tweet number three, 85, 90% of the people who quote tweet me and dunk me or whatever don't ever read the thread. They read tweet number three. And they often misread, like, look at poor Helen arguing with everybody. It's like, you're arguing with something you imposed on what I, I wrote, not what I actually wrote. And here I am telling you what I actually mean. And you're coming back with, no, you must really mean this. And so this is, this is the nature of now. So we have Foucault's now, we have Derrida's now, we have Baudrillard's now, we live in post-modernity. Okay, so here, here's a couple of contentions that I brought up with Wokel and, and uh, respond how you would. One is that the way in which this infinitely decontextualized uh, postmodernity of social media is, uh, is stabilized is through tribes. You find your team. Your team becomes your reality. You're, and that leads to the second point, that it, you Human beings individually cannot sustain infinite cynicism. They need agreement. We, we want to disagree with something because that's the interaction, but we, we're really longing for agreement too. So we naturally shake off into these different tribes. These tribes yeah. eventually define a belief system or a worldview. The postmodern condition that I think is the positive postmodern condition is the ability for somebody of a certain amount of plasticity of mind that doesn't just melt – their brain doesn't melt, but their mind is open enough without it falling out that they can go even tentatively and interact authentically with these different groups. It's the person who can walk between the groups is the is the postmodern Jedi. That's right. And, and, I would I would fully agree with that. And by the way, just to highlight, since I was just doing a little catalog of how we live in postmodernity, since you said the postmodern condition. And you just described the fracturing into tribes so people can keep their sanity, which is very much what I was talking about with Foucault and his, his truth regimes. Um, that's, that's your leotard, right? Okay. What does he even say? We must be skeptical of meta narratives, which be grand unifying stories. We yeah. need to sink down into mini narratives with tribal narratives. So each person's going to have their truth. This is what Mike Nana refers to as, as truth Protestantism. Mm-hmm. data becomes the thing or, or yeah. facts become the thing and then we have our contextual interpretations and yeah. that we're now operating where it used to be you know the cathedral as as moldbug would put it or or the catholic church 400 years ago controlled the institutional narrative around things and now all of a sudden you have the bible which is the facts of the world being presented to the laity and they're now in, in a language they can interpret and they can do something with it and they're making sense of it for themselves. And so now you're having this denominational, God, yes. too many syllables in that word. You're making denominations out of truth, as Mike phrases it, um, and a kind of yeah. truth Protestantism. And so this, though, is, I think, again, just as descriptivist, this is kind of, if, if Leotard wasn't insane about science, this is what he would have been talking about. Now, as far as the Jedi that you've described, and I agree with you, this is the light side of the postmodern force. My point in saying that we needed to start by, by, by contextualizing this, that we live in postmodernity now, is that people who are able to do what you're saying, the Jedis, who are able to walk from one of these regimes to another, um, have the set of tools necessary for navigating the space that we already live in. Does that make sense? 
Well, let's def- so define. So you were like, what can we pull from postmodernism? And the trick is that we can pull from, if we understand what it's saying, we have a higher likelihood of being able to become the people who can go from group to group. We can become the people you just described as postmodern Jedis. On the other hand, people who know how to manipulate this have the ability to become postmodern Sith. Which would be yeah. what? Uh, weaponizing the groups against to, each other? Or? Yeah, who know how to manipulate these groups. And the fact that these groups wholly believe that they have the the proper contextual corner on the truth and to manipulate them against one another, to turn them against one another. So whereas the postmodern Jedi would be able to go from one to the next and then build bridges across the tribes, the postmodern Sith is building fire, you know. Yeah, just setting setting fire to everything that might yeah. might bridge the gap. And, get and the fuel and the fuel for both of those is is in the individuals in the groups. By which I mean the fuel for war is inside of the believers within the group, and the the fuel for peace or the desire to get along and the desire to destroy are yeah. located actually in the believers within all these different communities. So you're actually dealing ultimately with human nature, right? And I will also point that. out, by the way, that when Helen has been arguing for years, very frustrated because people don't know what the hell she's talking about. Remembering that Helen, before she got into all of this stuff, was a scholar of late medieval and early modern, so, you know, 1600-ish literature. And in particular, we could get into the, like, 74 levels of detail of things that you have to be to be a scholar in England. But, um, yeah. you know, she was... She was, she was During the printing press, uh, the pamphlet wars. This. was, or is that postmodernism will, in fact, take us to a new kind of feudalism where our fealty becomes to ideologies rather than to a particular, you know, landowner known as a lord. Um, well, no, we would have um, – I think I think it, it's located in grifters. I, I think that – well, not grifter. There's got to be like another uh, word, but grifter is the closest thing. Somebody like you, somebody like me, some, somebody like uh, Brett yeah, Weinstein, uh, these, these people who, who, who are the nexus of other people's attention. And then it's the responsibility of, of the person who is, wants to be a, a marker of the group or, or somebody who's at the, the forefront or the avant-garde of these different tribes to go and to demonstrate speaking across difference, to go yeah, into, you know. Those are diplomats. <laughs> the, yeah, um, the diplomat. You, you, the, the, the atheist who goes and speaks in a good faith manner with the theist is somebody yeah. who's modeling this, okay, well, I'm, I don't have to give up everything I believe, but I can entertain your ideas and glean from them what what is necessary for my group because yeah that's something you need to do outside too. of outside of this purely objective science there's nobody who has a monopoly on let's not even say truth let's just say right behavior or perspective of the world we all need sure. each other there's that there's that part of relativity that is that to ignore is to leave out a bunch of richness that you could have by go and speaking to the feminist go and speaking to the trans rights activist or every other group, they all they all are speaking to something, and and I don't see uh, bringing up that possibility as necessarily saying that truth doesn't exist or relativity is the order of the day. There's a certain affordance that you have to have to perspectivism. Sure, sure, sure. And so this is where I think where you know I actually normally don't watch any podcasts or listen to. I, you're on YouTube, so I watched with uh, locals Jedi outfit and. Um, I, I, and his beads. And I watched 
and uh, the whole thing. And so I was kind of, you know, sitting there thinking, oh, this is what has to be said here. Oh, um, ah, you know, all along the whole time. And so I'm, I'm paying attention to this. And I, I just kept thinking that there's this, this gap here where, where he is correct. Um, because I see what you're saying and I agree with you on most levels, but there's also a level where the intention of the postmodernists was not to build these bridges. It was just to say that everything, I mean, Foucault was very, very, you know, truth is a local phenomenon. And so if you think of it this way, that these so-called denominations of truth, whether it's the feminists, whether it's the trans rights activists, whether it's the Proud Boys, whether it's Trumpers, whether it's QAnon, whoever it is, that these people are trying to create approximations of some, and I don't want to go full platonic, but we'll say platonic truth, some truth that, that we are we all inhabit a shared reality, right? They want an ideal situation. Well, is that proper? What, so th- let, me, let me put it this way. I think that there, I'm in the sense that I'm a realist. I believe that there is an external shared reality that all human beings interact with. I actually think that human, it's, it's a little silly to call it external. As a matter of fact, it's a little bit wrong because we are, we are matter also. Mm-hmm. And so we are, it's not really external. Humans are part of external reality. And humans as a category have a set of constraints upon them. We know that must be true because even within our closest biological neighbors, like chimpanzees, there is absolutely no ambiguity when you're looking at a human and when you're looking at a chimpanzee. No ambiguity. So there's some, if you think of all of the possible like spread of what DNA can produce as living organisms, you could mm. draw it out on a map. You could draw a circle and say everything within this circle is human, but nothing outside of this circle is human. And maybe the edge is a little fuzzy. But the next closest thing over is chimpanzees. There's actually a pretty big gulf. The edge can be really fuzzy, whatever. It doesn't matter. And the edge around chimpanzee can be really fuzzy. They don't overlap, not even close. And so, no, that's not necessarily true with, like, two species of birds that are really close together. They might actually overlap. Um, Ring species and all of these things that biologists like to talk about that complexify our story. So... There are fundamental truths about shared reality, and there are fundamental truths about shared humanity that are external to any particular person, or more importantly, any particular group of people, whether it's QAnon, whether it's French people in the 17th century, whether it's trans rights activists in England, in Manchester specifically, you know, whatever. Are you making a path towards uh, universalism? Is that that proper? And what I'm saying is that I'm a realist, so I believe that those things are real and that all of the different tribes are creating approximations of that based on the amount of context that they have available and the prior assumptions that they're making and so on. Whereas the postmodernists believed whether that exists or not is irrelevant because it's wholly inaccessible. And that I diverge from the postmodernists on completely. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. See, see, that's what I'm saying. Like there's a, a, you, you, Adopt their perspective, their perfect, perfectly descriptive, uh, you know, version of there's all these different camps. There's a space between the camps. In order for me to walk from one camp to another camp, I have to connect 
in myself what connects them. I have to be the yes. human being and yes. strip myself down to a certain level of, uh, I have to give up certain levels of opinion. I have yes. to give up certain narratives, yes. but I go Absolutely. down into like a virtue ethic or something even yes. more human than these extrapolations of humanity. I so fully agree a, with this. Yeah. So this is, yeah. this is when you said, is there something we can extract from the postmodern philosophy that's useful to the time we find ourselves in? It is that. It is that. It is the ability to realize that we do live in contextual contexts. I guess that's a stupid way to say it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> we live in contextual contexts. Yeah. Join me on my redundant redundancy podcast <laughs> later today <laughs> when I talk about hot things that are hot. Um, no, so we, what we do, we live, in, we live in particular contexts, and we tend to overestimate how likely we are that our context is accurate. And you have to be able to remember mm -hmm. that to strip down. Now, my argument would be also that the postmodernists took this process and what distinguishes postmodernism from enlightenment rationalism in many regards is that the postmodernists decided that the stripping down is the relevant thing and that it should be the, the only thing that you do and you just keep stripping down. Whereas the rationalist mm -hmm. realized, no, we strip down until that point where we can meet one another and then we stop yes. stripping down. And the thing that they they tried to set as the, the ultimate arbiter, the, the Enlightenment rationalism proceeds on the assumption that the, that the last thing that you strip down to is some external standard. So we try to find something external to you and external to me or external to your group and external to my group. And we let that make the decision when we're stuck in a conflict. If we can't socially mediate an agreement, we can't form a consensus, then we pick something outside of ourselves. And ideally, like the gold standard, else, like well, the golden like a gold rule. standard or like do the experiment and check against physical reality, which I mean, I get, I get called out. It's like it's so funny. You call people out and sometimes it just scars their brain forever. I got called out one time for saying that reality can't care about you. And they're like, no, it's a category error to even say that it can't care. No, I said it doesn't care. I'm sorry, because it's not capable of caring because it doesn't have the apparatus necessary to care. And I was like, you know, this, this is the stupidest semantic argument I've ever been in. The point is that, you know, my driveway, for example, which is definitely external to me and made out of things like asphalt that don't think very much, um, does not care at all. It has no concern whatsoever for what I think, you know, if I decide in my head that it acts like a trampoline, it, it is not concerned with my belief <laughs> in the least. And if I try to, you know, bounce off of my butt back onto my feet, like I would on a trampoline, I'm just going to yeah. break my tailbone. Um, yeah. Because it turns out even my tailbone, which is part of me, but is also made out of physical matter, does not care <laughs> that I have these beliefs. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. so there are limits. And so the, the, the enlightenment rationalism was the belief in fact, that most people are not very good at this, but the human beings, ha and that was part of their, their worldview. Most people are not very good at this, but we have the capacity if we slow down yeah. to step outside of ourselves and defer to external standards in matters of fact about the world. We would defer to objective reality through as much experimentation as possible. That's science. In matters of law, let's create a legal instrument that for the 
moment when the law is going to be adjudicated is outside of anybody. You don't have a king who can suddenly change the law anymore. You now have this written law. It's outside of you. It's outside of me. We go to court. Something happens. The law decides. Maybe it sucks for you, and it's good for me. Maybe the other way around, and maybe you're mad, and maybe I'm happy, and the other way around. And that's tough. And if the law is unjust, we will create a process that's also external as much as possible to any particular whim of an individual to change the law for future circumstances. But you basically just got to deal with what you got. And then we have this further process like pardons and communicating of sentences and, you know, retroactive this and that. Uh, and then the, on the opposite end of that, with grandfather clauses and so on, so that you know, we kind of deal with the fuzz around the fact that the law is not truly objective. But the point is that the law is set up to be, in, in liberal societies, external to any particular individual at the moment when it has to be adjudicated upon. In other words, it becomes quasi-objective. And this is sort of the thing, is that it was all about objective standards. And so postmodernism, when, what Vogel's really driving at, yeah. postmodernism was the utter rejection that any such thing is reasonable or good and it's quite extreme in that regard that's not to say that you know it's not useful as a description of the world because i just argued quite lengthily that it is and it's not to say that it's not useful in terms of coming up with a number of tools for navigating a situation where its descriptions hold because that's mm -hmm. also true but as a philosophy itself it was quite extreme and in fact dangerously garbage because it's ultimate claim is that every adjudication has to be subjective and that the only thing that keeps it from being pure subjectivity has nothing to do with reality. It has entirely to do with the power of human beings. So in other words, the, the claim in, in enlightenment rationalism from the beginning, that humans are capable of slowing down and using their reason and deferring to external standards. Postmodernism says, no, that was a lie. That's not possible. It's mm -hmm. all power all the way down. And that was just an act, application of power by the people who had it, which is just not true. It's, well, it's, it's true to a certain, a, certain, a certain degree it, it's true. It is a thing that can so far as certain people benefit more than others, you can describe the system as as power exerting itself like there's i'm not saying it's true but there is some way of looking at western society and seeing whiteness in there and seeing colonialization in there and seeing these people only adopted this liberal system because it got them the leg up on every other uh every other community every other but we uh, phrase that i think community. in the terms that richard dawkins famously put forth with his cheeky little smile and his little red cheeks when he said, it works, bitches. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the thing. This is actually the thing. This is why, why did you title it? James, think, Ben, thanks for asking. James, why did you title your book Cynical Theories? I'm glad you asked. Why did you take critical and cross it out on the title and put cynical theories? I'm so glad you asked. Thank you for asking. One of the reasons, among about three or four that we had in mind, that we saw that that title was, was fitting with that yeah. particular cover graphic. I keep looking, there's like three of them right next to me, but there's something in the way. Mine's, so I, um, I, I only have the audio book, so. Uh, <laughs> Plug, buy his book, buy my mug. That's right, buy Ben's mug and read my book while you sip 
I don't know what you're drinking out of your mug. Just coffee. Well, it's coffee. pure nuance. I have beautiful Chinese postmodernist tears. Mine is a beautiful Chinese jasmine tea that I actually got in China, which means it's also stale because I haven't been to China in almost two years. But um, <laughs> it's still really good. Uh, it turns out they don't send the good stuff here cheaply. Yeah. Uh, you have to go there to get it. Um, and it's really a different <laughs> level of tea. But uh, no, so why did we do this on the cover with, with Cynical Theories? Was part of it that we wanted to make the point was that there's a certain cynicism to the process of saying that human beings can never get it right. Right? There's Except for me. I, I could be right about human beings being wrong. You can always be right about <laughs> I mean, that's, sort that. of, that's why you're a postmodern spin, because that's sort of really all they said. Nobody can be right about anything except that we're right, that you're always wrong. That's, <laughs> that's like postmodernism. In, is, <laughs> that's them in a nutshell. Yeah. You know, now give me pretty boys. Um, that's my yeah, Michelle. I mean, there is the, there. Yeah, there's the, there is a ultimately there is a psychological attack that you can make just by saying, listen, you guys aren't happy and you're not creating happiness. I mean, ultimately, you can boil it down. The counter can be a virtue counter. You can adopt certain levels of postmodernist techniques like I do creatively, like like I do with my tweets. I try to make tweets that are perfectly contextual contextualless, where you just pick them up like what is this doing in my feed? But it, it just shoots your brain out of what you're doing, right? Like there's there's certain sure. techniques of doing that, that are good, that are beneficial, that are fun, that are playful, that no, you can no, stand on with, with, with postmodernism. So, or, or just adopting certain postmodern techniques. Yeah, I mean, I Without have going to, all the way down and ruining everything. You don't have to do that. I do this, too. Like, I'm the scholar who's like, <laughs> point the needle at your mom. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, just nasty, your mom <laughs> jokes. It's like, oh, the, the woke people haven't made me talk about my penis in 3.4 days, you know, I'm like <laughs> tweeting that, like just out of nowhere. Um, it's just not what people expect, right? And nobody quite knows yeah. what to do. This is a postmodern technique. I'm kind of deconstructing the idea of a public intellectual. Of certainty, yeah, of, of, yeah, of the, of the yeah. image, of the um, representation. That deconstruction is fine as long as there's something behind it, right? right. Like, you, so, like it's okay to compost things, but you eventually want to use all that soil to, 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 to make something, to do something. new. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, obviously people are accused us. They said, you can't possibly use the grievance studies papers to criticize postmodern based scholarship because it's postmodern itself. And I'm like, well, that first of all is ridiculous. Of course you can use postmodern tools to criticize postmodern things. Um, in fact, that's one of its bragging points is that it thinks it does that about itself. But, um, yeah, the project was, it was quite postmodern in, in, in its form and structure. The idea of creating a series of just, you know, asinine papers where we very carefully mimic and play, again, Derrida, play, the idea of playing with um, the, the cultural structure and linguistic structure that they have was in itself very for for a different purpose is a very kind of postmodern thing to do. I often did think, you create you know, positive knowledge because one critique of postmodernism. You look at somebody critiqued me. I can't remember his name right now, but he made a video and he, he pointed to Tarantino as a postmodern director. Somebody's uh, taking and 
pulling apart yeah, other things too. Seinfeld but he, was a but, modern show too. But they ultimately there is a cynicism in all of these artists. Do they? Can you ever create something positive with postmodernism? Those techniques. Do you ever create something that 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 is uh, positive to the human experience, or or ultimately? I mean, I know you said with or, you hate postmodern art, but you can use yes. these techniques to actually make really interesting art and music and and films like Tarantino or funny comedy like yeah like. Uh, like did you did you create positive knowledge through that grievance studies affair, or did you only critique? Were you so only ever think, cynical with that stuff? I think that we actually produced positive knowledge in the fact that we simultaneously were really doing what we claimed. In fact, we didn't think of it ourselves. We didn't start the grievance studies affair and say, "Hey, why don't we do an ethnographic study of a culture within academia, and a particular economic subculture? We'll do an ethnography, and we'll embed ourselves to do to anthropology." anthropology. Yeah. We didn't do that. An anthropologist told us near the end, "Hey, what you've done is what's called a reflexive ethnography in anthropology. You've embedded yourselves in a particular culture and reflected it back upon them." to learn how the culture operates, to become part of that culture, and then you report it on what you actually learned from a position that holds outsider within. So you have that perspective where you're in the group and outside of the group, and so you can offer uh, perspective that way. So the project itself, is it really separate from our reporting about the project and us telling what our purposes were? No, not really. And so in the, the papers themselves were probably just kind of destructive. I don't know. One of the reviewers said we created an important contribution to knowledge by saying something about putting sex toys in our butts to practice being trans. Um, okay, we, we did actually coin a new term, but that was really one of the reviewers also. Trans hysteria um, in parallel to homo hysteria is apparently a concept now that is thanks hmm. to us. I'm really, by the way, looking forward to writing that in truth for my encyclopedia because the word is in some sense technically due to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, those, those that memosphere kind of uh, things just infinitely banging around without any necessary uh, feedback loop in reality, like uh, academia, the decadent phase of knowledge where people are just making and uh, ideal laundering and, and all this other kind of stuff that's separated from any sort of having to be about anything other than about what it is about, right? Uh, that right. kind of stuff. Um, it's kind of a lost cause in, in a way, or um, I mean, it is again. I think it just has its 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 context, but that is mostly a lost cause. Like the just what do you call it? Intellectual impostures that that um, Sokol and Brinkman called it, or uh, fashionable nonsense. I guess was the English title of that. So that's just sort of useless. I mean, it's just it's just it's it's peacock feathers, man. It is peacock feathers. And it was to attract a particular style of academic mate, and it worked for a while. And then I don't know, maybe like the the whatever eats peacocks came in and just got them scientists, I guess. But um, so, it, that's so, mostly useless. Postmodernism itself is a set of tools that was derived within Enlightenment liberalism, yeah, to break down hegemonic structures like Christianity. As a matter of fact. Uh, and Catholicism, if you look at the Protestant Reformation, is sort of broadly consistent with the Enlightenment changes that were going on there. Uh, you're breaking down that hegemonic power that the Catholic Church had throughout the Middle Ages. And 
it's taking that to a particular extreme. I'm not going to say that it's useless because it becomes a very powerful set of tools for taking apart something to finding absurdities where you could say the critical theory is for finding hidden assumptions. If you want to be very charitable to it, postmodernism is for finding hidden absurdities, hmm. just internal contradictions inside of a thing uh, fits within that kind of dialectical process. And I think that it's like, you know, I often think of all this as like it's being this really powerful solvent. And so I picture myself, you know, in a much dirtier job than I actually have. Like I'm at the mechanic shop and I'm like fixing the engine. And then you have some pieces that like got glued together by, you know, some something in the engine burning or, you know, whatever. And they basically cemented themselves together. And you got to go get, you know, the special solvent you barely ever use because it might dissolve everything. Uh, and you use it real carefully with an eyedropper with goggles on or whatever. That's mm-hmm. postmodernism. So you use it to really break down mm-hmm. some stuck gunk, some stuck stuff. When you have a properly hegemonic power and that the liberal process isn't responding to, postmodernism will tear it right apart, mm-hmm. which, because it was designed to tear apart liberalism, which doesn't really tear itself apart. And Could that so, um, be uh, another way of uh, making uh, right or making sense of what Wokel said specifically about President Trump uh, being the postmodern president insofar as he dissolved uh, the gunk that was uh, obscuring our view of, of a certain form of order that wasn't oh, yeah, necessarily totally. good. Totally. Just and in particular, dissolving the gunk uh, that's kind of like the, the, the now I'll use revolving door correctly between the media and the political class. Yeah. Um, yes. And, you know, just certain pretenses around the entire thing. It's like I kind of knew before I finally decided I was going to vote for Trump. I had to reflect on this a lot. It's like there was a time somewhere it was in the fall or I don't know, somewhere in that weird space between summer and fall, you know, August or so. It was later in the year, though. It wasn't very early when all of a sudden I would watch Trump's antics. And I used to just kind of be like, oh, sick of this. And then I watched it and I was laughing. And I was like, he's funny now. And I was like, uh oh, <laughs> something has changed. Trump is funny now. And that's when I, I suddenly realized, you know, something is profoundly different. And when you start to realize that Trump's funny, yeah. what he's doing, that it's funny, stuff that shouldn't be funny is funny. You realize he's, he's actually exposing absurdities. Then you, under, you can understand him, in a sense, as that postmodern thing. And so a contextual way to think of Trump's presidency, once you've so-called taken the red pill and stepped out of the bubble— and all your cognitive dissonance goes away when this happens, is that Trump is a postmodern president in the fact that he understands intuitively. I don't think he understands it intellectually. I'm not claiming that he's read Foucault and is like, aha, this is how I'll govern. Um, no, it's more that he intuitively understands that we live in postmodernity, and he knows how to manipulate the postmodern condition quite well. And so in that sense, he's our first postmodern president, um, in that he is the president that fits the circumstance properly and he's deconstructing the gunk around it now i'm not saying it's all like i'm not saying he he's not spilling solvent sometimes because i think he's pretty uh, i mean he doesn't drink so you can't really picture him as like a drunk sloshing it around but you can kind of get he's not being particularly precise with where he spills the stuff um he's not got his little eyedropper and his goggles and he's doing it in a very kind of controlled way but he's he's definitely dumping the solvent around and often splashing it it's like it's like you find the spot that's stuck and you know you have to put the solvent and you get your little eyedropper and you're going to be very careful and he's like just got a cup of it and he's like yeah you know good enough and that's sort of what he does and, and once you understand that about him you yeah. your anxiety about the guy more or less goes away 
you start seeing what he's doing, you start thinking it's funny and a little bit ridiculous, a little bit too far. But at the same time, you're like, <laughs> it's hilarious. I can't watch him talk now and not laugh the whole time. I just, it's, I love it. Um, There's something that happened uh, to me with that change too, where I just, he just started becoming very, 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 very funny to me. Do you, can you, I have to get going. No, yeah. So we can wrap can, up. Can can we pivot towards something positive? Do you see or can you foresee or can you lay out the virtues or the behaviors or the attitudes of somebody who could be a leader that could lead us past the postmodern condition? Uh, something that we can embody or something that we can look forward, uh, look for out in the world or, or emulate? Like who would be able or what kind of person would be able to bring us to, to, a, to the post-postmodern position or, or navigate through postmodernism or are we just lost in the woods and there's no no through there's no end goal to this except for infinite tribes feudalism as uh helen uh proposes hi my name is james Lindsay, and i am here to be your leader <laughs> my website discourses.com my book is cynical theories okay so, no, based um, on your twitter persona what are we looking at james <laughs> my crotch probably um that you put the space in the right place. Mike Frotch. I'm talking about a person, Mike Frotch. Um, Is it a far right Mike Frotch? Yeah, he, you know, you were a two on that alleged academic paper, and Mike Frotch is a three. Um, oh, whoa. Yeah, Mike Frotch is as far right as it goes. Uh, tremendous, tremendous. Very At least we know which way you have to tuck it. Yeah. Um, it bends left. Uh, so, no, the, the leader of this is actually going to have to be somebody who understands the way to use postmodernism without going around and setting the fires, right? Who's, who's not using – so I feel like Andrew Breitbart had sort of the right ideas. Like he read the critical theorists and he was like, aha, this is what to do. And then he just like leaned into it and then set fire to everything. It's like, no, bad Andrew Breitbart, bad Andrew Breitbart, wrong. No. Okay. So you need somebody who understands that and also who understands how the nature of now. So you could say that Trump does very intuitively, but he's not the right leader, right? He's definitely not the right leader um, because he's just splashing the stuff around. So you have to have somebody who knows how to use this stuff, but also has a keen understanding of principle because objective reality does exist. And uh, there is some correspondence and some meaningful reason that we should say that that which is true is that which corresponds to reality outside of ourselves. So you need somebody who understands that. And then, so, so far I've described myself. Hi, James Lindsay, newdiscourses.com. Uh, but then you also have to have somebody who's fairly visionary. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, I'm off the stage. And it's like, I just got Andrew Yang right out of this discussion. Um, but you do, you have to have somebody who's forward thinking enough and kind of uh, clear headed enough about seeing how to inspire people and bring people together, which is something I lack uh, to organize people to speak on behalf of these kind of, um, how do we work toward a shared understanding of truth, understanding that we're going to have, uh, I don't know, local truth impediments. You know, your truth denomination is going to see it differently than you. And how do we make that, if we call that like a, a like a, a divide, how do we make that divide fun rather than contentious? So you need somebody who has this sense of the of the big picture principles of yeah. truth and a fairly good grounding in, in ethics, 
Uh, not necessarily that they went to college for this crap or whatever. I don't trust anybody going to college for anything anymore, including myself. Um, but we need people who have um, this kind of understanding of how the world works right now. They have a big picture understanding of, of, of how liberal principles, both ethically and epistemologically, work. And they have that ability to figure out how to have fun across the divisions. And so my Twitter is absolutely not that. It's like I absolutely just set fire to people all the time on there. Maybe I should change. Maybe. Um, but it's too fun to just like set fire across. <laughs> you, got, you Brett Barted yourself, man. <laughs> he started well, playing with I the mean, fire. <laughs> there's a thing you right thought you now, were though. Prometheus. Now you're uh, King Midas, Icarus. No, kind of I am cross. Prometheus. I just have a flamethrower. But it's called not a flamethrower. <laughs> It's not a flamethrower, right? Just we know, I can't say the French of the people. No, so, yeah, exactly. So, no, the, the, the truth is, though, um, the, 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 the leader that we need now has to look like that. And I will, just to defend myself against my horrific Twitter behavior, which is horrific, um, the truth is also right now that we have a problem with people folding to everything. People challenge them and they just, oh, I'm sorry. I said that okay. in Canadian so that it would really stick out. And uh, that that has to stop. So somebody has to model being kind of like the hard yeah. ass. And that person is yeah. going to set fires. So I'm not trying to Breitbart. I'm actually trying to model the refusal to um, cave in to everything. I think that there's too much caught up in both respectability as kind of like a broad policy, like, oh, you only can say the respectable things. No, that's how you get manipulated in the process that we're all caught up. The woke tornado gets you if, if you're going to be, res- you have to be respectable all the time. It manipulates your respect. It, it, if you want to get into Hegel, it mm-hmm. takes your takes your respectable position and throws the antithesis that makes you look like if, an idiot. If it, if it preys more on women's care, just generally, I'm going to be sexist here, but you're going to have to forgive me if uh, you're offended by this, but it preys upon women's desire to care for and it preys upon men's desire to be respectable. Like the, the men who end up in these positions of completely acquiescing to this stuff are real, they're hooked in with their respectability. Then the, You can oh, see yeah, that, that operating with George Bridges very specifically. Like yeah, that's it, totally, that's what it is. It's people who are terrified to look like they're they're not, or to, to terrified to act in a way that will make them not liked, and terrified to act in a way that makes them look like they don't they're not informed. And then if you you want to play the, the the woman side of this thing or however you want to do it, it's you know I don't know, have you done the I care game with Mike, Nana? No. <laughs> he's got this whole thing. It's his bit. I don't want to steal his bits because okay. it's so good. We'll, we'll have to have like, him on. Well, we can no, play no, I we care. Do it because he says he says that the whole thing comes down to somebody coming up, and you can imagine like a room. Of academics and somebody stands up and they don't say anything they just say i care and then somebody else stands up and they say no i care yeah. and then somebody else stands up and says no 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 i care and so there's the caring access access there's the 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 i know something you don't access and then there's mm-hmm. the um i'm likable access and they just railroad people on those things and so i kind of have to be a disagreeable bit of a on yeah. Uh, yeah on twitter because Twitter is kind of like the arena for this. So you have to kind of embody the opposite. I actually see myself, the character I play on Twitter is like the Joker if he got reformed. <laughs> Wait, like which, which Joker? One? But the Joker. Like, uh, but Jared like, Leto's Joker? Is that so imagine like, like the Joker became a reformed character that's now on Batman's side, to, but he's like stopping the Riddler and stuff. How would the Joker stop okay. the Riddler? 
that's sort of how I picture myself. Okay. Yeah. Why so serious? Exactly. Are you Heath's uh, or are you Leto's Joker? Which Joker yeah, are we talking about? Like any of these movies since like Jack Nicholson. I don't watch movies, oh. man. Okay. 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 You're, you're I can't Jack be Nicholson's Heath's Joker because that's really dark, man. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty. Okay. I've been doing my leg workouts. My T is up. My mood is good. <laughs> I can I can tell by your youthly vigor and your uh, nubile glow. It's really exuding. Uh, we're going to take that opportunity uh, with that mug to end the podcast because I, I have to go to work. But um, yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. Always, well, yeah, I do too. I, I have a twenty-eight-year-old face and a forty-four-year-old bladder. That's my condition. Maybe maybe a thirty-two-year-old face. I, I don't know. I don't know how old I look. You are adorable. Oh, thank you. You too, James. Uh, be fruitful and multiply. Um, I'll try. I'll do what did, I can. Uh, did we plug you enough? James Lindsay at Conceptual James. Yeah. No, I mean, do we have to plug me anymore? I've been plugged. New discourses. I'm plugged right now. You, you're plugged. Oh, you're like, jacked in. Oh, it's so awkward. Um, <laughs> it wouldn't okay. be no, yeah, a James podcast uh, without male genitalia flying into the frame. Yeah, I did a whole one. Um, I didn't mention my penis one time. Um, oh, wait, I think I did like four times. Yeah, you did several uh, times. Uh, happens every time. So, no, you know, newdiscourses.com, that's the website, at Conceptual James on virtually every social media platform, uh, especially Twitter, um, where I'm a dickhead. Uh, I think, oh, I didn't change it yet. I think right now I'm a stealth bomber on Twitter, but I, I might change it to very big prick later. VBP, VBP. Yeah. Right, well, thanks, thanks for your time, James. Uh, you will be back on again, maybe with a guest, maybe just mono e mono. But thank you. Anytime, buddy. All right, I'm going to end it. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via PayPal.me/slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A Boyce. Have a good night.